sifter.com.au. Hello and welcome to Lightmap from Sifter. On Lightmap, we have conversations and explore the culture of video games and interactive media with games makers, journalists, and thinkers from around the world. My name is Adam, and thank you for joining me this week. My guest this week is author and journalist Jordan Miner. You may have seen Jordan's writing at geek.com, his contributions to PC Mag, and his freelance work for gaming outlets, including Kotaku, the AV Club, Pace Magazine, and The Escapist. Jordan's latest work is the Video Game of the Year, a year-by-year guide to the best, boldest, and most bizarre games from 1977 to now. Out now through Abrams Books. Much more than a list of 40 games to play, Jordan's book captures the history of the culture and conversation that has shaped itself around video games as an artistic medium, from Pong to Fortnite. Welcome to the show. Glad to be here. This is my first uh, international talk about the book. So yeah, excited, excited to have you on and, and really keen to dive into a lot of the themes and, and, and just essays that you've put together in here. But before we do that, let's see what's been making the news this week on Walkthrough, which is Sifter's weekly gaming news podcast. Hi, I'm Fiona Bartholomew. And I'm Kyle Paletto. And here are the top stories this week on Walkthrough, Sifter's weekly news podcast for Sunday, 10th of March. We have the highlights from this week's Xbox Partner Preview. Roguelike deck builder Bellatro pulled from stores due to misunderstanding about its gambling content. A 2.4 million US dollar settlement has killed the two biggest Switch and 3DS emulators. And this year's BAFTA award nominations are here. You can get every episode of Walkthrough for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or on our website, sifter.com.au, every Sunday. You're listening to Lightmap, interesting conversations with video game creators. So Jordan, I thought we might just start very high level at the top and and talk a little bit about you before we dive into the book itself. Um, I'd love to know a little bit about yourself, how you got involved in games writing and yeah, just a little bit about your career. Sure. So I, I always say that I've wanted to write about video games for money since I knew that was a thing that a person could do. Uh, that was about like the early 2000s when I started reading more uh, game magazines like the like before it was E3 2004 was the first E3 I paid attention to like the DS was coming out. So, you know, that's a long time ago at this point. Uh, so, you know, I was I was I started following more gaming news at that point. And then when I was in high school, I started doing a lot of freelance iPhone game reviews because that was a space. There was tons of iPhone games coming out all the time and no one knew which ones were even worth playing. So there was at the beginning of the App Store a real demand for freelance uh, iPhone game reviews. So I thought that'd be a, a kind of a, a, a fun way to sort of like get in the trenches of like paying dues or doing game reviews of like, I know I can't come in and start reviewing the big stuff right away. I'm just some kid, but if I can just grind out these like angry birds, clones and clash of clans clones for years and years, uh, and just kind of get, you know, just get better at writing, you know, through that as well. Uh, so I did that in high school. I was my senior year of high school. I had like two study halls and I would just be in my car playing games and, and taking notes on them. And that impressed a lot of college interviewers that I was doing that and getting paid for and that I really wanted to do that at that point in my life. And so I went to Northwestern University, uh, which is uh, the Medill School of Journalism, a very good journalism school. So I just learned how to be a kind of all purpose journalist that way. That was good that they teach you how to do. I was having to cover like city council meetings and stuff I really don't care about at all. 
Um, <laughs> but I got to meet a lot of really awesome, awesome now, like very serious journalists at places like CNN, like people who were like on the Trump Russia beat at CNN were people I was hanging out with at some of these parties. And I'm just like, I don't want to die in a war. I just want to <laughs> write about games. Um, but, I, I, you know, um, I was I made sure at Northwestern to always try to write about games where I could. So my like capstone project for my magazine writing class was this really in-depth, really reported uh, feature about the Chicago indie game development scene that I then sold to Kotaku. And that was like 10 years ago. That was kind of my big, my big breakout freelance piece um, was that Kotaku piece about Chicago. Another great thing about that school is that they have a residency program where they put people to, um, you know, intern for like a semester and they put me at PC Mag and that's where I now work. Yeah, it's it's interesting to hear about your your pathway into the, the career of games writing because I think lots of people come in as hobbyist writers or bloggers or, or what we call now content creators. <laughs> right, yes. And, and, and it's interesting to hear about a more traditional sort of journalism sort of three-way in, into talking and writing about games culture. And it, it mirrors a little bit of my own experience as well, having to, to go to university and be like, I am learning about writing sports journalism and I do not care about football, but here I am and I need to learn these skills. They would make us, there was a, a class where they would make us, you have three hours to go interview 20 random people in the city and write a story. And I'm like, okay, this is the worst for my like anxiety and being an introvert, but it was a good way to come out of my show. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's sort of interesting. How much do you feel like being able to have that sort of like traditional journalism background has really um, impacted the way that you think about video games and the way that you think about the culture around them as well? I think it made me less like tolerant of stuff that is bad, if that makes any sense. I as, think it makes a lot of sense. It was my idea of like, if I'm going to, as a kid, I knew like, I'm going to do this game writing thing, but I, that's ridiculous sounding, you know? So it's like, if I want to do this, I need to be very good at it. Because if I don't, if I'm not good at it, then if it doesn't work out for me, then it's like, well, of course, it's video game writing. Um so, yeah, I think I just it made me really value. I'm not the only person who says this, but like being able to write about have other to have other interests and be able to write about other things is important for for everyone, regardless of what what they're doing, I think. Mm, it's 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 like that thing I think about with like cultural criticism, where it's like you, you need the broad palette of like being able to like consume a whole bunch of books, a whole bunch of film, a whole bunch of cinema, a whole bunch of movies and take that knowledge into the way that you apply that lens onto video games and vice versa. You need to play a whole bunch of video games to really kind of understand the culture in a broader sense now as well, because they've so enmeshed themselves in the last like 20, 30 years. Um, yeah. It's, it's such an interesting place that we find ourselves with games writing now. How do you feel about the current climate of, of writing about games for a living at this moment in time. We've seen a lot of places shuttering and closing. I know we're going off tangent. We'll get to the book shortly, but it's such an interesting topic to think about, especially in the context of, say, for example, Waypoint and Vice in the last couple of months as well. Yeah. And I mean, some of it is, is, is not the fault of the writers. It's all economics. It's all it's all companies and corporate greed and, and whatnot. Um, I'm very involved in the union for our company. So I've had a real kind of up close and personal look at how a lot of the forces driving the stuff like in opposition to just good work happening um yeah a lot of that is just, is is very depressing and very much not something i have a lot of um solutions for i guess in the short term 
Um, but there's a lot of talent, but regardless, there's always going to be a lot of talented people. Video games are, are, are super popular. There's people who care about them and a certain percentage of those people are going to be people who want to write about them. Uh, so whether it's on these websites or on future or like on social, like on streaming or other platforms or wherever they have to get it out there. I think they will get it out there. It's just a matter of, are they going to get like, will it only be like a hobby for them? Will they be like supported to do it to the best of their ability? Um, I don't know. But I guess to tie it back to the book, something that was really important to me was to, at least in my own network, was to gather this group of really excellent writers that I know and at least provide a platform for them in this kind of one-off instance of something that is also a physical object. You know, I've worked for websites that don't exist anymore or they exist, but, you know, my stuff got, you know, like past versions of it got kind of wiped out. So I have, I have tons of work that you can't really read anymore uh, that was all online. So it was really cool to me to now have this physical object of all my game opinions that will just always, I mean, you know, it's, it will always exist. It's interesting you bring that up. I, I think a lot about, um, yeah, websites that have shuttered and you lose this entire like history and archive of cultural criticism about things. It's, it's happened a lot in an Australian context with, with game, with music writing in particular. So some of the biggest kind of like uh, sort of left field, kind of music culture and criticism websites have shut down, been rebought over the years, and you've just lost decades of writing as a result. It's sort of like the Australian equivalent of a pitchfork shutting down and losing everything that was on there and all the freelancers losing all their pieces. I remember a few specific things happening with games writing uh, internationally as well, where websites would shutter. And yeah, I, I think the thing that I, I took away from the book while, while reading it, is particularly with the guest contributors, was the idea of like... Um, providing a platform or a leg up for a lot of voices that don't often get to be platformed and spotlighted as well. Um, I'm really curious about the process that you went behind finding the guest contributors and, and who you picked out, because there's a really broad variety of interesting people here from sort of really well-known names from like Austin Walker or Patrick Kleppert to people like Julie Muncie, who's writing I've been reading for years, to YouTubers like Alex Mukakis, who does the great like sort of uh, Final Fantasy music videos, which I love his enthusiasm and infectiousness for, for like games music is really kind of addictive and fun to watch. How did you go about finding those people and approaching them to get involved in the book? Yeah, so that was always part of the initial pitch, um, even before we sold the book, the idea that we would try to have this whole um, collection of people. So that was always there from, from the beginning. So I was even as I was writing it, I was trying to figure out who I want to approach and, you know, getting a list going as that was going. Um, but then once, you know, once it was sold and once it was like actually out there, then I started approaching people. Uh, some of them kind of already knew already cause they're just like friends of mine. You know, there's a lot of people from PC mag in the book. Um, but yeah, just people that I, you know, people that I, I, I've been, I've admired from just again, like, you know, like 20 years of, of being a games writer and, and following other games writers, uh, and people, who, and people who I kind of more like up and coming people and people who seemed like they might be approachable people who had like open Twitter DMS. Um, so it was really just kind of like a, like a free for all. I was like, if they they seem cool, I'll ask, like, there's no harm in asking them and they say, no, whatever. I'll ask somebody else. So, and then a lot of them, a lot of them said yes. So let's talk about the genesis of the book itself, because it's, it's sort of like history as a list in a way. And it's, it's, I also like to think of it as almost like a Trojan horse. It's like, you can be like, here's my listicle, here's the 40 games, but really it's more than the 40 games I've selected. How did you get there with the idea of, I want to do a video game a year? 
how did that process start? Yeah, so the, the the point was to always make it a history book. And the whole list conceit was uh, my way. And in other words, I didn't, I didn't come up with this, but like it was a way of making it more like episodic and more um, like digestible. You see, you could read each chapter as like a big review almost. Um, so it was a way to sort of make it easier to for people like who don't know anything about games at all to of, of like, if you're going to learn the entire history of it, here's a way you can do it sort of step by step. Uh, so that was part of the point there. It was also to kind of to force interesting decisions. I've been saying um, you could, you could put together tons of places that put together their own best games of all times lists. They've tried to make their own game canons and you can, you can see what those lists are like and I'll see a lot of the common games that end up on those lists, but limiting myself to one per year, I think, again, like force a lot of interesting decisions of like, I can only pick one game from 1998, even though that game that year had Ocarina of Time and Metal Gear and Half-Life and StarCraft. Um, and it kept the list from being too dominated by like, again, like too dominated by, by games that we've seen a lot of the time in the past. Um, so that was, that was the point. That was the point of having the list. How did you decide this game is the one? That needs to be the one for this year what were those things that that elevated one game from another like what what put them into to quote you your canon for games so there are some games that are just they just have to be there like super mario brothers and pong and pac-man and you know minecraft and there's some stuff that's just obvious that just has to be there um the list was also settled before the bulk of the writing was done too so that was a way to have like all like the feces settled before I could then really get into the bulk of the writing. Um, but to go back, what you were saying about the whole Trojan horseback has Trojan horse aspect of it. It wasn't, it was if I, the whole point was to kind of tell the whole history of gaming. So I had to pick games that collectively represented all those different things I wanted to touch on. So a chapter I talk about a lot as maybe the one of the more controversial chapters is spore for 2008. That is not the best game of that year or any year by anyone's measure, but it's very important in what it represents for how games culture can get so wrapped up in hype and impossible expectations and stuff for games that n could never deliver on it. And so that's, you know, and we still see that with crowdfunded games and games like No Man's Sky that are now pretty excellent, but launched and not at all the state that people wanted so that's an important trend to explain about gaming. And I thought that Spore was the best vehicle for explaining it. Mm, I, I really loved that that Spore chapter as well, because, yeah, it was it was a way not to only kind of lean into like, what is this weird hype cycle thing, this sort of uh, cultural product, but it's also a product of capitalism. And then people get excited for this thing that gets hyper-marketed to them. But also it's a really beautiful way to sort of talk about the wider idea of like sim games as a whole, um, because, you know, Spore is part of, you know, the the Sim City, the Sims, that whole universe as well. So it allows you to almost touch on an entire genre of games itself. And was was that something you were thinking of as well when you were kind of picking out these games? Like this, this is the one that fits for all these reasons, but also it allows me to expound on, say, a visual novel, for example, like Depression Quest is another one of those ones where I feel like it it hit a moment of kind of twine games, itch games, softer indie games, emotional experience games, but was also about a cultural moment as well that happened. Yeah, it was. I was absolutely trying to hit as many genres as I could, as many different companies as I could, as many kind of like movements 
Um, and to even like, if you, you, I think you can read it in any order you want, but if you do read it in order, you can start to see kind of narratives emerge. So, you know, if you start with SimCity, which is the, the 1989 chapter, and then you see that eventually reemerge with Spore. Um, and yeah, I, I was trying to hit on sort of different, like, in some cases kind of movements, I think are a little underappreciated. So one of my kind of personal picks was Super Meat Boy for 2010. Uh, that's a great game in and of itself, but also it was way my way to talk about Newgrounds and Flash gaming and something that's really been lost as now just Flash itself has been really purged from the internet. Um, but that was a really like that was a really inf- like like secretly influential like part of indie games, I think, and just that that whole Flash aesthetic and people kind of playing like really kind of crude browser games on Newgrounds. I think is a, is an important part of gaming history as well. We we talk about Newgrounds turning into like the legitimizing of Newgrounds, if you will, which was when Xbox Arcade opened up and a lot of those games ported over and had a lot of success from there too. And that sort of led to almost kind of like the sort of modern arcadey indie scene that we have in a lot of places now that's all due to Newgrounds. So I love that that was kind of in there as well. Um when you were thinking about this, were you looking at stories that may have been left out of other places in the past or may have been overlooked in previous attempts to sort of chart the history of, of, of video games and its culture? I will say to that, a lot of the games in there are pretty famous games. Um, I think it's meant to be pretty mainstream. So a lot of picks are like very famous stuff. Um, I will say, though, with the contributors, I left it wide open for them to... Um, write about games that I maybe have not heard of, or certainly most audiences have not heard of. So that was my attempt to sort of balance the fact that on the one hand, this kind of needs to talk about famous games um, for, for a variety of reasons, but then to have this other angle of it to sort of have this whole breadth of what, of what games are. Um, but to this extent that of like, of, of kind of platforming, like other angles of it. I will say like a lot of game books that I've read that are very good and really well reported. I feel like they focus too much on the games as just as a product or just as like an executive sort of marketing vision. So I feel like a lot of game books in general don't talk about the games enough. So even if I'm talking about a very well-known game, I still feel like my, me treating it, me talking about it as a game is a perspective that you may not see in some other uh, books like this. I, I describe it as my attempt to do a sort of mainstream like arts criticism for video games. I liked the chapter about Super Mario Brothers because you mentioned about how when we talk about games as culture, because games, games journalism, games writing, games criticism is such a young medium itself within the fact that it's in a younger medium that was born within capitalism we tend to look at other creative mediums as like a milestone that games need to achieve. So that question of what is the citizen cane of games tends to loom heavy over things. I like that you answered it in your book with Super Mario, which I think is very brave and bold and a good choice. Yeah, I mean, that's just, that, that's my take forever. It's also, I just need an angle on Mario that no one had yet. You know, that, that game has been talked about to death. So like that has to be a chapter, but what, what can I say about it? Yeah. But um, how do you, how do you feel about those conversations that we tend to have? in in game spaces when we we are trying to like view them through the lens of something is not a capitalistic product um but then like kind of end up going through these interesting cycles where we might compare them endlessly to cinema for example yeah that's tough too well one that's another that's another consequence of just all these sites getting destroyed like all these all these conversations a lot of them have been had already uh but you can't go to that website anymore so it gets rehashed again it's like oh our game's 
what about should we have scores for game reviews and all this stuff that's been talked about for years and years so that's a kind of another kind of issue of like the cultural memory not being what it needs to be because we, we don't have the the it doesn't exist in the way that it should no that's that's a really interesting point and i i think a lot about where we are right now on the internet as a whole we've got this sort of weird we're in a weird flash moment and i don't know how like out of date what i'm about to say is going to be like by next week but it feels like we are slowly watching um very homogenized platforms that a lot of people have been using for long periods reddit twitter social media as a whole start to kind of fragment and fall apart and i wonder are we shifting back to a model of an older internet where things were kind of siloed off on lots of different weird websites and lots of internet forums kind of came together and i think to myself what is going to happen there to the i guess the more kind of broader um social conversation that's been happening online for the last 15 years about games and is it necessarily a bad thing that we are moving back towards a place that might be like an older internet as opposed to where we've been over the last 15 years i've thought about this a lot and i think that some people really welcome that and i'm not necessarily opposed to it but my my skepticism about that is will that appeal to people will that only appeal to people who even have that experience but with how the internet used to be like the internet changing to what it was, or kind of it still is now, allowed a lot more people to get on it and to interact with it in like a meaningful way. So like, will those people, will all your like Facebook family like go on a forum? Like, no. And I still think that there's value in having places on the internet that there are like places where like everyone is. Uh, and I think to, I think if that goes away, I think something important is kind of lost in that. I, I think you also touched on a really good point about like preservation of of like history and 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 cultural conversation which i think this book does a lot of li- like heavy lifting to sort of do um what are some of the things in this book that you were like this needs to be in here it needs to be preserved in a physical format i don't want this thing wiped off the internet i feel like we need to have the definitive version of what happens here in this book so i don't know how mainstream yet jerry lawson's whole story is to most people I feel like, I mean, I feel like at this point it's very common knowledge, but I think my perspective is really different as both a hardcore gamer and as a black person that, oh, of course, who doesn't know Jerry Lawson? Um, but to to put that in this book in like the first chapter to just tell people, hey, cartridges, this really foundational piece of game tech was invented by this black guy was something that was very important to me to to put in the book for sure. Um, and, and, you know, going more on the preservation angle, uh, you it, to, if you want to play half most of the games in here like now legally like how could you for for most of them so if you can't play it at least you can read about it i guess yeah it's um it's like some of these games are in museums now thankfully (laughs) a whole bunch of them you just can't get um and yeah i i it's it's an interesting thing to to feel like the writing and the conversations that you're having about these things disappear and recycle themselves. But then the things themselves become inaccessible in a way that feels very um, frustrating too. Yeah. I mean, at PC mag, at PC mag, I cover a lot of streaming services as well. I review like Netflix and places like that. And all their content libraries are also now getting wiped every other month. So it's not just games. It's all, it's all art. Yeah. It's, it's, it's almost like the, the end point of where capitalism takes art in a way, which is that the art itself is less valuable for capitalism. Therefore it doesn't have to be permanent and we don't need to preserve it. We just need to give you the next thing. Right. And the streaming services didn't even make money. Like they weren't even good at that part of it. 
let's jump back to the book for a second. Um, (laughs) 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 I'm, I'm, I mean, I, I really loved your approach to kind of writing these beautiful essay chapters for each particular game. But one thing that I also really loved was at the end of each chapter, you had a little column called Extra Life, which I think was an acknowledgement that there is just so much to cover here that even if I pick one thing a year, there's there's other stuff that needs to come in as well. And I loved that there was a little side essay of another game from that year and then that's how you also branched in a lot of the uh, guest contributors in as well by finding a thematic link to that year's game and kind of linking other games to it as well um how did how did that column come to life in this book and was there an equally agonizing sort of process of deciding what was going to be in there as well yeah so yeah that was i had way too many games I wanted to talk about. Um, and I wanted to get as many games in the book as I could. I wanted to be as comprehensive and sort of definitive as I could get it. So just have these runner-ups uh, was my way of doing that. And it's kind of just as a reading experience, it sort of mix it up too. It's like you read this whole long chapter. Now here's like a little short thing. Um, kind of make it more like a magazine, I guess, in, in a sense. Um, and yeah, it was, it was just cool to have stuff like to see other, it kind of gave you a more of a context of that whole year to see what was another important thing coming out that year. Um, like, oh, this also, like you, you, you may not, you might have realized that something also was coming out around the same time. And it could be in like in conversation with that game um, in, in some kind of way. So to see like Call of Duty 4 in 2007 and then Far Cry 2 in 2008, I was like, oh, wow, like that's a real leap even from just that one year. Because mm, it's, it's when we're writing about the history of games, there's so many giant leaps that happen in such a short period of time. And I really love how your book actually captures that feeling of how fast things were moving in such a short period of time, so much in such a radically short period of time. It's like, where will Animal Crossing be in five years time? We don't know, but we know right now in this moment, it was a huge part of 2020 for so many people. And for a lot of people, their entry point into video games as a whole, because it that was what got them through the pandemic was finding that game. Right. And the pandemic is, you know, it's obviously a pretty like immediately important historical event, like not that far removed from it. So that was a pretty easy one to to sort of predict. But yeah, like besides that, yeah, it's, yeah, you're right. It's having to like guess what would end up being important. Yeah. When I think about that, that idea of slowdown that I mentioned, it's, it's, it's almost that sort of like, I can pick up a game from eight years ago and it kind of looks and feels not too different to what I'm playing now. Like, yeah, hair might be looking a bit better. There's some ray tracing going on, but for the most part, I feel like I can pick up like uh, a Red Dead Redemption 2, for example, and then, you know, a Star Wars Jedi Survivor, which came out a couple months ago. And the through point between those two games is very close now. But when we go back a couple of decades in your book to the mid 80s, a five-year difference in games is almost like a radical shift in the entire way that you interface with the game, the controller that you use, everything that's happening on the screen, uh, an entire technology for how you create graphics may have shifted. Um, it's it's so interesting how you manage to capture that kind of really like hyper-fast period of, of just games evolving and shifting and changing so dramatically. I mean, that's just the reality of what was happening. I didn't really, you know, it was all just sort of, presented to me it also kind of led to a slowdown in the writing by the end too because i wrote it front to back like beginning to end and so in the beginning when stuff was always so different every single chapter it's like oh, okay there's a lot of momentum to try the next thing try the next thing and then but i was getting towards the end i was just kind of tired in general i'd, I'd written like a whole book at that point but then it's like 
okay, these new ones. What is a combination of I'm just tired. They're not that different. And I don't know how important this will be. So, but, you know, I'm proud of all the chapters. Hmm. One, one chapter that I feel um, I, I thought was, is extremely important. And I'm really glad that's in here is, um, you know, I think one that goes to the heart of a lot of cultural conversations we've had over the last 10 years in, in sort of the game space, particularly around the idea of like, and I, I hate this term, but like, who is the gamer? <laughs> and like, um, who gets to talk about games? What games are valued? And I, I feel like you really unpacked that really well in the chapter on 2014 about Depression Quest, which was Zoe Quinn's uh, game about experiencing depression and going through life, which then blew up into a hate movement that kind of overtook uh, games culture for an extended period of time, I would argue, is still there, bubbling away, called Gamergate. Um, tell me a bit about that chapter and a bit about the process of why it was really important to articulate clearly what was happening in that point in time. Yeah, so that was always going to be in the book. That was no, there was no pushback. There was no like that was always the plan. Partially because that's that's something that a lot of people who don't know games have at least vaguely heard about. So that kind of isn't in keeping with it being something for like mainstream readers. Um, it was important for me to talk about that because it was a really, it was an unavoidable thing to that, to like, it just happened. Like to, it would be disingenuous to not talk about it. If you're going to talk about the history of gaming, like, of course. Um, and, you know, it was important for me to, I love video games, but it was important for me to not be like just completely fawning over them. That's also dishonest. Um, just uh, that would just be not true. That would not that would not reflect. If the goal was to put all of my takes on games in this book, I need to put all of them in there. And that's not the only critical take, but that's like a you know uh, that's one of the, the bigger ones certainly. Um, I'm a very political person. I don't I, I don't really I didn't feel the need to 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 adopt some like you know fake kind of centrist standpoint for something that I very much have an opinion on in this instance. Um, and then it was important for me in that chapter to, to, to segment it, having the back half be about the sort of political stuff, but to have the first part be just about the game. Um, just to talk about the game on its own merits. Uh, like you said, to have a, a visual novel kind of text adventure game in there to represent another just genre and to represent another indie game. Um, and to talk about like the creator of an indie game, you know, something I tried to do in all the chapters where I could was mention the names of individual people where I could, uh, you know, games are made by huge teams, but least to put some sort of human face to it so you know that was that was one that was really important for for a variety of reasons and i, I hope people like how it turned out yeah and i i think i think as well those are the chapters that resonate the most it's it's the sport chapter for example that like you, you mentioned before it's like those are the important conversations that we think about with games a lot that don't get to happen a lot in this field because as you said we've had those conversations before but then they disappear off the internet in a lot of ways and and being able to step aside and actually critique something you love i think is a really important thing <laughs> and also just kind of present the history of something that you love as well authentically and earnestly as well i think is really important too and so it's good to be able to highlight something put a light on spore and be like actually that game sucked but we were really excited because it sounded like the most amazing thing in the world um here's what it feels like to get sucked into something that feels like it was going to be the most amazing thing in the world but uh i guess you made a worm that climbed out of the water <laughs> so you know it's it's and it's the the same thing with gamergate as well that period sucked 
It was not great. It was fascinating to see how that movement and culture on the internet then shifted into what people think of as modern day Trumpism and trolling on the internet. And to kind of see that, like the early nascent form of that evolve over time um, within a community that like you enjoy is kind of a depressing and disappointing thing, but it's part of the history of games culture and it kind of has to be acknowledged. Um, so I think it's great that it's in this book. And I think also it's great that the actual game itself, which is quite good and has a lot of merits behind it. And I think is a really beautiful piece of art about exploring depression and mental health gets to have its moment as well, separate to the movement that, that kind of, appeared around it as well um yeah it's it's i think it's if anyone picks up this book that's a great chapter to jump into and to dive into for a good understanding of games culture <laughs> and th- and then it, it only it only gets less depressing from there so yeah every other chapter is great and full of good things <laughs> amazing achievements great things people have made and done <laughs> Uh, that's very. I, I appreciate that though. Yeah, because that, that was one. That was definitely. It's like I hope this. Is, I hope this one's received well because it's a spicy one. I wanted to ask you a couple of you know quick fire questions. Sure. Favorite chapter? Do you, which which is the one that you were like? I'm so glad I got this one in. I so the Stanley Parable chapter was a late edition. Uh, that was after the bulk of the writing was done in 2021. Um, but then we were like, we should have. We should get as far as we can. The book's coming out this year, so we should we should get as far as we can. So, and I don't like Souls games as people will read in the book. So I wasn't going to pick Elden Ring. My editor is going to be so happy, by the way. Uh, I'm the only one on the team that likes them. Well, I hope, I hope you still appreciate the second row chapter. It's not, um, I do. Um, so it wasn't going to be Elden Ring. Um, if I'd written it, uh, Immortal- I hadn't played Immortality yet. Um, but also I- I'll talk about her story in the Dragon's Lair chapter, so that's okay. Um, but uh, Stanley Parable Ultra Duck just comes out. I am in love with it. That's another kind of cheat because it lets me talk about a game that's pretty old still. Like we can talk about the previous versions of that game. So we have some uh, history with that. But that game as like a deluxe version and the way it complicates notions of like what is a sequel versus a remake versus a remaster versus just the idea of extra content is very much like on that game's mind. So being able to talk about that kind of the last minute was really cool. And just to have the chapter end with talking about like Games are about choice, but what about a game about that? What about about to have it end with a game about games? I thought was a pretty kind of cool, like full circle moment. And on, on that moment, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the program today. Thank you so much for joining us, Jordan. Thanks for having me on. Video Game of the Year is out now through Abrams Books. You can pick it up at good bookstores or online. Australia's best video game podcast. This is Lightmap. Get every episode free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and sifter.com.au. That's all for today's show. Thanks again for Jordan Miner for joining us on the program. Sifter is produced by Fiona Bartholomeus, Daniel Lang, Chris Budden and Adam Christou. Mitch Lowe is our senior producer and Gianni Giovanni is our executive producer. You can find links to everything we talked about on our website, which is sifter.com.au. Read more about the games and guests that we've featured there. Why not join the Sifter community? If you enjoyed this and you enjoyed listening to the podcast, you can join us on our Discord server or at sifter.com.au forward slash Discord. Please share this show. It's the number one thing that you can do to help support us. Word of mouth is really important for indie podcasts like us. So let your friends know. And if you reckon they'll enjoy it, send them a link. That's all for now. And thank you for joining us. We'll see you on the next episode of Lightman. 
Chris Button here from Droprate, Sifter's video game review podcast. Final Fantasy VII Rebirth is finally here, continuing the ambitious reimagining of a beloved classic. It's very, very funny. I guess like that's that's part of the silliness, you know. Like you have this these really big world-ending stakes. You know, Sephiroth is a really terrifying villain. You know, the world's ending, and I think to have a game that is still fun and pleasant to play, I think maybe the tone is kind of. It's important to strike both tones because you need that levity so that it's not constantly depressing, you know? And I think so having the characters have that humor and like having the mini games and having it be a little bit lighter hearted, I think does give you that hope. Does it uphold the legacy of the famous original or burn Midgar to ashes to forge its own path? Find out on Drop Rate, available now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts.